Welcome to Season 2 of the Gamers Change Lives Podcast. In Season 1, we learned about entrepreneurs and others around the world who were creating jobs and opportunities through esports. The one common theme throughout the season was that it takes money to create jobs and change lives. But let's face it, money can be hard to find, especially in some parts of the world, maybe in your part of the world. But this season, we are going to share stories from esports entrepreneurs in emerging markets and showcase how they found funding they need to be successful. We're also going to talk to investors in Africa, Asia, India, who have invested in esports and highlight the challenges that those markets face. In addition, we're going to talk about sponsors who provide funding to teams, tournament organizers, and streamers. Join us on this journey for Season 2 of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, aptly titled, Follow the Money. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast. When it comes to esports, like I say, I'm not the expert. I'm more of an explorer. But the goal of the podcast is to talk to esports entrepreneurs and others around the world to learn how esports can create jobs and to maybe inspire others to do just that. Our tagline is play games, create jobs, change lives. Today, really excited. This is going to be a good special episode. Our guest is Jeremy Utley. He's the Director of Executive Education at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford, which in short terms is called the Stanford D School. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Tom. So our conversation is really to frame an approach for esports entrepreneurs. And esports entrepreneurs here are tournament organizers, team owners, streamers, to be more creative and to be more successful, to use some of the techniques and uh, strategies you're outlining in your new book, Idea Flow. And the goal of of the episode is to invite the audience to think. Think about ideas, think about creativity, and to think how that can help them start or build an esports organization. And I want to start here talking about divergent voices, because that's kind of what got us um, uh, into this conversation here. Can you, um, so can you talk about what's the value of bringing divergent vo- voices into your business? Well, it, fundamentally, it comes down to where do ideas come from? Or what is an idea, if you have to start there? And very, very simply, neurologically speaking, an idea is a connection. It's actually not true that I, an idea is something new. It's, it's a new combination of two old things. And many times, an idea strikes our brain when two parts of our brain connect that we weren't expecting. So I'll give you an example. I got a friend who works at an electric vehicle company, which will remain nameless. They're working on a problem called range anxiety. Probably most people know about range anxiety, right? The, the fear that you're not going to get wherever you're going on a current charge. Great. Well, she was at a coffee shop the other day and she told me she's thinking about how to solve this problem. And she said that she happened to overhear a couple of military folks come in the coffee shop. She's eavesdropping and apologize. I said, don't apologize. That's an effective creative strategy to eavesdrop. And she said, I overheard as they were talking about how for jet fighters, they don't scramble back to the base to get more fuel. They do what's known as a midair refueling. And she said, instantaneously, I had an idea. And anybody who's conscious on this podcast, if you're a listener, you had an idea. We had a collective hallucination called an idea, right? Because I introduced this, this notion of range anxiety, which most of us already knew. 
And I introduced this notion of midair refueling, which for those of us, for the 99% of us who seem top gun, we already know what that is, right? But you bring those two things together, you go, wait, what about exactly? That's an idea. An idea is simply a connection between things you already know. Turns out the brain is incapable of creating from scratch. So we, we aren't creating something from nothing. When we think about an idea, where does it come from? It comes from stuff we already know or stuff we're learning. You can think about them as Lego blocks, right? Conceptual bits of knowledge are like Lego blocks. Well, coming back full circle, Tom, to your question about divergent voices, what's the value of divergent members of a team? Well, if you and I are on a team together, we both bring our own bags of Legos. And all of a sudden, the stuff I know can collide with the stuff you know, and we can make all sorts of new combinations that, that were not apparent to either one of us necessarily, because we have different Legos in our bags. We have different conceptual building blocks in our heads. And so the value of, of diverse perspectives or of diverse voices is they bring the possibility of novel connections that wasn't there before. So this raw material that you're using, raw material of your experience to create, to be creative, yes. because because I like when you talk about, well, the, the brain doesn't come up with new things. You, you think an idea, oh, that's, uh, I just came up with an idea. I'm, I see how smart I am. But instead, it's you putting things together that were already there. Exactly. So for an esports entrepreneur, entrepreneur let's say, who should they be listening to? Who should they be talking to to get this kind of experience, would you say? Well, one, your customer or your, you know, the person whose life you're trying to improve, right? So we talk a lot about developing empathy for the people you're designing for, right? It could be your gamers. It could be your audience. I don't, it depends on what the esport business is. Um, but one for sure is the end user who you're designing for. Another is supply chain partners or stakeholders. Are there partners in the value chain? Could be advertisers, could be, you know, collaborators. You look at what like the backyard scientist and Mark Rober do when they make a joint, you know, mashup video, right? Just like hip hop artists coming together, right? Bringing their bags of Legos together. Um, or it could be a team member, right? Uh, somebody from a different department, somebody from a different uh, vertical in the business with a different background or experience. So whether it's the customer, whether it's a collaborator, whether it's somebody on the team, furthermore, it could be someone else in an unrelated field. I mean, that's one of the brilliant things about Ben Franklin, right? When Ben Franklin, you, you look at the, the breadth of incredible innovation that he brought to the market from bifocals to the Continental Congress, to lightning rods, to the fire department, right? I mean, you, you say Tom Leonard, founder of public libraries. I'd go, well, that's a pretty great contribution to society, right? Ben Franklin had like a dozen of these scale contributions. How did he do it? One of the fascinating tactics that he employed for 30 years, every week he met with what he called his Junto. It was a group of people not in his organization who didn't work for him, but other tradesmen. He called it a leather aprons club, a group of people from different industries who gathered for the purpose of learning and sharing knowledge. And every week for 30 years, they would entertain a set of questions. Questions such as, has anyone moved to Philadelphia whom we ought to know? And for what reason? Has anyone's business fallen into disrepute? And what is the reason why? Are there any advances in the sciences that have bearing on our businesses? And what are they, right? And they would run through these questions every week. And all of a sudden, what looks like this incredible breadth of innovation starts to make a little bit of sense. 
You know, this was an individual who was rigorous about colliding perspectives with folks far outside of his industry and discipline, but who were like-minded in their pursuit of applying novel knowledge to their areas of influence and their domains. What I like hearing you talk about there is that they had, they had a shared um, objective there, because on one hand, I, I'm hearing you talking about, talk to a lot of different people. Talk to a lot of different people with a purpose. Yes. So, I mean, it's I mean, not, it's create... not just trolling Twitter, right? That doesn't work. Right. Yes. 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 From, from experience. Yeah. Cause, cause in the book, you're talking about learning circles, what you're describing there. And I just think that that is, is such a valuable thing. And I think a lot of times, particularly in esports and probably in other areas, you just kind of live in your own little circle, in your own little ecosystem. And you think this is where I need to focus all of my time. And what I hear you saying is you need to branch out. The other thing I hear you talking about, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, curiosity. I think mm. curiosity is so important to innovation. Critical. Critical. It's, it's Lego gathering, really. I mean, to use the metaphor from earlier, right? You can only build with the Legos you possess or the knowledge you possess. And so this longing for more, this curiosity is effectively the longing for more knowledge, Right. And having a sense of wondering about things. I think too, there's a humility to curiosity that's incredibly valuable where someone, it's not knowing, it's not knowing. And we love to be in this arena of our knowing, we, of our certainties. But nothing new happens from knowing. All of the novelty happens from not knowing and from entering into, venturing into the unknown with that sense of optimism and curiosity. My friend who's a neuropsychologist, Bo Lotto, he would be a great guest for your podcast. He wrote a book called Deviate. And in it, he talks about the, the, one of the only areas where human beings seek out uncertainty is play. And I feel there has a, there's a, I don't want to steal his thunder, but I think that he and you could have a fascinating conversation about the implications of play and discovery and curiosity on in innovation in this space. Are, are you a gamer? Do you play video games? Not much. Little, a little, but not much. Yeah, which was which is fine. It's like uh, one of the things that we find in talking to people here on the podcast. One, thing I always find fascinating, you know, because I like to be curious about what people are up to, and I always want to find out what is it that got someone into what it is that they're doing. Where was this inflection point? Because so many people, when we talk to them, they are gamers and they're like, oh yeah, I was, you know, you know, I was, the, um, you know, a per, you know, looking to be, a, uh, we're talking to uh, Sofian in Morocco and he was a professional player. And, and I was like, okay, what's that inflection point where you were, you were a player and all of a sudden you realized, Hey, I can, I can make a job out of yeah. this. I can make a career out of uh -huh. this. And I just think that's an interesting point. Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, for me, not that I'm not that the inflection point is to professional gaming, but my inflection point, I've had a few. And if I think about my most recent inflection point, it came from a sense of dissatisfaction. I've been a teacher at Stanford for the last 13 years, and I started to be dissatisfied by the fact that I'm telling the same stories all the time. That's kind of troubling. I don't like that I'm telling. And I realized it's because I'm not thoughtful about seeking fresh input. I had to, and I realized if I don't prioritize my own learning, nobody else is prioritizing my learning. And if the content feels stale to me, I mean, the reality is as long as the audience is fresh, the content can be stale to me, but it's going to be fresh to them. But if my own 
passion is fueled by the freshness to me. Even new knowledge to the students won't be fresh to them if I don't convey it in a way that's credible and compelling. And I started realizing that my own interest, not just what's in, what the students were interested in, but my own interest was fueled by learning. And actually, the pandemic played a big role in that because all of a sudden, I had a little bit more time. It's a little bit easier for me to connect with people from different places and, and to get out of my rut and my routine of working with the same people in the same ways, et cetera. And I found, for example, we're working on this book, Idea Flow, which is now out in, in a, it got published a couple months ago. But I realized as I was doing research, all the stories I know are about men. I have four daughters and I want to start telling stories to them if for no other reason than I want them to have women to look up to. And I can't tell stories I don't know. So I need to go seeking some new stories. And that's what led me to start a podcast with my friend Mara Hershenson, an amazing female entrepreneur and VC. And she and I did a whole series of interviews with female founders. And that, again, similar, going back to curiosity, going back to not knowing, it was only because I said, I don't know enough stories about women entrepreneurs, female founders. I need to know more. And the, the, the cover for all those conversations was this doofus doesn't know anything. Will you tell him something? Not. And whereas ordinarily I come into the conversation and I'm a, I'm a world leading expert in innovation. I'm a world leading expert in creativity. And it's natural for me to show up to a meeting with something to say. And what I loved about all of these meetings, the series of interviews I conducted was I didn't have anything to say. All I had was the opportunity to listen. And so to me, that was a, that was a kind of, I think a pretty large inflection point for myself is realizing I have to take responsibility for my own learning. And then the fascinating thing is if you fast forward, maybe one year, I was giving a lecture to a product management class at Stanford. And during the Q and A at the end of the class, kind of just, just, you know, haphazardly, I said, you know, I mean, I didn't know 80% of the stuff I just taught you guys a couple of years ago. You could have heard a pin drop in the classroom, Tom. You know why? Because students assume that teachers have always known everything they know. And the notion that I am a learner just like them, that's totally lost on them, right? And so anyway, so there's, there's all of these kind of rules that drive our thinking and assumptions that drive our interactions. And the truth is, every, you're learning. I, I, I had lunch with a business school student today. He said, yeah, I got to be honest. I don't really want to know what I want to do yet. And I said, Terry, I'm 15 years old. I'm sorry, not 15 years old. I'm 15 years out of business school and I don't know what I want to do. And anybody who tells you they do is making it up, right? But there's these, there's these rules that we can have in our mind. Right now, I don't know, but I will know at some point. And that's incredibly limiting. And I think for me, kind of realizing some of that is... Well, I think, I think one of the things is, and, and I, I'm just seeing it right now in your face, it's like when you're learning new things, you're, you're more animated. You're more interested. If you went into that classroom and you taught the same thing every, every, every time by road, it's like, here's the notes. You just pull them out. Right, it's like right. your, your delivery would be completely different. It's just like, it's that, that, that excitement out there. The other thing I, I will always tell people, if you're curious, start a podcast. Mm, it's it's cool. like, cause one of the things that I've learned here is that I can have, I'm having a conversation with you that I never would have had without the, the pocket, you call it a cover. It's like with the podcast format. So it's like, it just gives me the opp opportunity to talk to people literally from all over the world, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that conversation. Yeah. I also like hearing yeah. you talking about looking for the, for the female perspective, because one of the things that we always try to do is we try to have as many 
uh, female guests and to talk to, we were talking to Eniola Idan doing amazing things in Nigeria. Hmm. We're talking to Chantel Denise Ortega, who's, who she helped start a um, women in games chapter in Asia. And her, her philosophy is, um, well, the women in games, their philosophy is to create a pipeline of women to the top levels of gaming. So it's not just necessarily, so they're like, yes, we want to have more women in gaming, but we want to create a pipeline, their, their term to get people, to get women to the very top. I thought, man, that's, that's, that's pretty. So she's, she was a great uh, guest and just something I didn't know anything about. Yeah. That's so we're talking, talking about ideas. Um, where can I get more ideas? Yeah. So it's funny. I, I was thinking about this recently. If I give you the prompt or a listener, if you consider this prompt quick, come up with an idea, what do you do? Most people kind of do this. They, they look up and to the right. They're accessing their memory, which is to say what they're going inward. And that's a natural instinct, but, and useful, but it's also limiting. Where do you get ideas? You know, I heard Malcolm Gladwell be interviewed by a marketing professor at NYU and the marketing professor asked him, if I gave you a month, you had carte blanche, unlimited budget to create a new story. How do you approach it? How do you come up with ideas? And Malcolm said something beautiful. He said, I don't come up with ideas. I find ideas. And what I would do is I'd go talk to 50 people in order to discover what my idea is. And I love that notion because so many of us, if we're given the prompt of come up with an idea, we immediately go inward. And what Malcolm Gladwell was pointing to there is another instinct, which is incredibly useful, which is we call it the discipline of inspiration. But it's this instinct to look up instead of looking down or looking inwards to look up and say, who can I talk to? Where can I go? What can I try? And this is something that designers call seeking inspiration. My wife, for example, is a fashion designer. She's a wonderful fashion designer. She's got to go to Paris for inspo trips, right? And as a financial analyst, you know, a spreadsheet wielding, you know, management consultant, I heard her say that and I'm like, yeah, right. You just want to go on a boondoggle to get macarons. You know, that's, I know I've, I've seen this show before, but for her, she comes back from Paris and she's inspired with textures and colors and patterns and all these things. And I didn't have anywhere to put that in my spreadsheet. I didn't know, you know, when I heard the word inspiration, I thought in terms of, you know, those cheesy posters on corporate hallways that say teamwork. And it's like a picture of a bunch of people bungee jumping, right? Or something like that. For a designer, inspiration, the instinct to go out into the world is deeply embedded. And I was, and I would say even for just people who think of their work as creative work, I taught a class with a hip hop artist named Lecrae. It's a world-class Grammy award-winning hip hop artist. He and I are giving an assignment to our MBA and engineering students to go get inspiration in the world on this creative challenge we were giving them. And I could see on their faces, these kind of blank stare, you know, almost like looking in a, in a mirror, but 10 years ago when my wife said she had to go to Paris, you know, I'm like, what does that have to do with this problem? And I can see for these students, they don't know what inspiration, what going out in the world has to do with solving the problem anyway. And I just said to Lecrae, I said, Lecrae, how do you think about inspiration? And as only a hip art, as only a hip hop artist could, he dropped a bar. He said, inspiration's a discipline. And I realized for the students in that class, 
inspiration going out into the world isn't even on their radar as a possibility, let alone a routine that they regularly engage. So when you say, how do you come up with ideas? Building that instinct to get out. You want to think out of the box? Get out of the box. Very simple, right? Get out of the box. Step one, get out of the box. Step two, think there. (laughs) Yes, yes. Because the other thing that you were talking about, it takes 2,000 ideas. It can take 2,000 ideas to find the right one. That's right. So, so you, you've, got to, you've got to be this idea generator. Um, how do you, it, it'd be true in any organization, but for an esports organization, how do you turn your team into idea, into an idea generating machine in the best sense of the word? Right. How, do you, how do you inspire others to become idea generators? Well, th- there's a few things here, Tom. One is, you know, what do you do yourself and what do people do individually? That's kind of one element. And then two, How do you cultivate group genius? So I can't do something for the group that I can't do for the individual. Meaning it's impossible to achieve at a group level what the individual, beyond the individual capability, right? Um, It's like saying, how do I teach a group of people to be a great soccer team when none of the individuals can dribble? That that group of people is never going to be a world-class football team. I mean, we're watching World Cup right now, right? They're never going to be a world-class football team unless they all learn how to dribble and juggle and pass and shoot the ball, right? So there's, so built, teams are built on individuals and the, the core individual capacity is deferring judgment. Can you silence the self-censor? You know, um, Charles Lim is a researcher at MIT and he conducted an MIT, uh, sorry, an fMRI scan study of hip-hop artists, and jazz improvisers. And one of the things that he found studying jazz musicians and hip-hop artists was in the fMRI scan, when they enter their creative state, there's a part of their brain that all of a sudden doesn't receive any blood flow. And it's the part of the brain responsible for judgment. They basically stop judging their ideas. And that's where the creativity comes from, is a lack of judgment. So Individually, if we want to get to the question of teamwork, individually, we have to be good at not judging. And for sure, that means when Tom says an idea, Jeremy can't say that's stupid. But first and foremost, when Jeremy thinks of an idea, Jeremy can't say to himself that's stupid, right? And when Tom thinks of an idea, Tom has to silence the tendency to think, I can't say that to Jeremy. I can only say the good stuff. Right. And so there's a, there's kind of an individual daily discipline that individuals should engage around reducing self censorship. We call it the idea quota, where every day an individual thinks of a problem they're trying to find the right answer to, and they generate 10 answers instead. Very simply, it's impossible to come up with 10 good answers. But luckily, we don't say come up with 10 good answers. We say come up with 10 any answers implausible, ridiculous, stupid, goofy, et cetera. That's fine. But the, the, the quantity is the important thing. So that's the individual level. Then at the group level, how do you facilitate interactions and the kind of safety required to get to group genius? Well, there's something that we call in the book, we call it an innovation sandwich, where instead of having a meeting, you know, everybody's familiar with the brainstorm. Most people, when they hear the word brainstorm, their eyes instantaneously roll. Like, oh, again, is my kid sick? Can I go, do I have an errand I have to run? Anything to get out of the cults of the conference room. But the truth is um, bringing people together to mash up diverse perspectives, as we talked about earlier, is incredibly valuable 
if, and there's a big if, if the context is set. And so the question for a leader is not, is bringing people to va- uh, together valuable? The question for a leader is, how do I bring people together successfully? And the answer to that lies in acknowledging the value of one, certainly psychological safety, but two, the value of individual processing alongside or as a complement to group processing. Because most people, when they think about brainstorming, they think about a meeting where we come up with a problem, we generate solutions, we make a decision, and we commission action all together, right? And what we'd say is take those four elements and break them apart radically. Give people time to alternate between individual and group work by doing this. First, give the problem far in advance and allow people to think about it before they ever come together. Two, when they come together, come together not for the purpose of judging or deciding, but for the purpose of building on what they've already come up with. Three, instead of deciding at the end of the meeting, ask people to continue to consider the prompt and the solutions that were generated in that meeting. And then fourth, when you come back together later, you can be evaluating not only the ideas you came up with in the original meeting, but what hopefully are the better ideas that occurred to you between the last meeting and the next meeting. And that's really where there's a big missed opportunity because the truth is incubation, you know, the psychological model of creativity that widely established is four stages. One, preparation. Two, incubation. Three, illumination or the light bulb moment, right? It illuminates. And then four, verification. What happens in today's always on rapid meeting culture is we give incubation the short shrift. And what we want is preparation and just skip incubation and go immediately to illumination and then verification, right? And the truth is we need to gestate. Sometimes we need to actually give our subconscious even the room to consider a problem. And that only happens if everything doesn't happen in one meeting. If everything has to happen in one meeting, for sure, anything that can't happen in the time uh, that has been given the meeting won't happen. As you're describing this, one of the things that's coming to mind is, uh, no, because I remember in the the book, you said, stop killing your ideas. It's like, stop doing that self, um, um, self selection, self judgment there. But one of the things in, especially all the people that we talk to around the world, I'm just thinking a lot of what you're saying that culture is going to have a big impact on. And in fact, back when we were talking to, um, you know, to the women in, in games and so on. And, and some of them would be like, you know, this, oh, in the Philippines, it's really wide open. You know, women can do anything. And some of the women were just like, oh, that would be so nice. That would be so great. I would, mm-hmm. I, that's what I would like because we don't have that where I am sort of thing. Right. What have you seen as far as culture impacting what it is that you're describing? Well, there's, I, I would say in American culture, you know, I've, I've worked in Bolivia, I've worked in Zambia, I've worked in India, but m- the majority of my experience is in the U.S. So I'll speak primarily from a U.S. perspective, although we've got a number of clients in other countries. What I can speak most authoritatively about here is, and there is a, I would say, almost a toxic orientation towards productivity in America. We are fixated on this notion of efficiency. And the truth is, as it pertains innovation, Innovation is not efficient. And the question is not how do we be efficient? How do we innovate efficiently is almost an oxymoron. What we need to be is effective. And there's a world of difference between efficiency and effectiveness. And sometimes the most effective thing doesn't look very efficient at all. 
you know, when Amos Tursky, who is Danny, Danny Kahneman's partner, you know, the, Amos Tursky and Danny Kahneman rewrote the rules of economic theory. And they did so in a series of wildly inventive experiments. And when they were rising stars at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, they were asked once, how do you come up with so many fascinating experiments? You know what Tursky said? He said, the secret to doing good research is to always be a little underemployed. You waste years by not being able to waste hours. And he was referring to his and Kahneman's tendency to amble around Hebrew University, laughing, joking, reinventing the laws of economic theory, right? And to anybody who's being a studious and they're studying, if they look out the window and they see Kahneman and Tursky walking around laughing, they think those guys aren't working. And what they're doing is even deeper, more profound than the work that's being done at the desk. But they had broad enough definitions of work to allow themselves the freedom to do that, to permission to deviate, right? And the tendency in our culture is if it can't be measured instantaneously, it's not worth doing. If it's not, if it doesn't feel productive, if it doesn't look productive, you know, people, if somebody goes on the walk, they look over their shoulder to make sure nobody sees. You know, I, I won't be caught going on a walk. Why? Because it doesn't seem efficient. Well, who said anything about efficiency? Well, that's the only thing we can measure around here. Oh, I see the problem, right? So culturally, there has to be a reorientation towards what does effective work look like? The other thing I would say is there's a tendency to want the answers rather than to, uh, one, fall in love with the problem, which is way more important. Solutions not nearly as important as the problem is. And successful innovation teams are teams that have fallen in love with a, with a really rich problem. And then two, they have an approach that they value, not an answer that they're espousing. And so to me, the, the kind of key cultural orientations that have to shift are one from efficiency to effectiveness, two from a solution orientation to a problem orientation, and then three from being, from fixation on the answers to a fixation on the approach to discover answers. All of those are, I mean, they're all components. There's, there's overlap there. But each of those things has a huge impact on how effective we can be when it comes to innovation. One of the things, one of the things I thought when reading the whole book, but what you're describing there is you're really descri- describing Netflix. Mm. Because when I started there at Netflix, it's, you know, in the early days, it was like Netflix was like a testing juggernaut that had this little, that had this little operation side yeah. that would take what the testing side figured out and then run with it right. until the next thing. But I mean, people that were testing, I mean, I was doing the email marketing, which was great. I mean, we, you know, we could test all kinds of things, uh, but every part of the organization was in test mode. I mean, the, the operations guys were in test mode. Mm-hmm. I mean, every, uh, you know, hopefully the accounting people weren't, ah, yeah, but exactly. everyone else was like it, it, testing and the culture there was to test everything that you could. And we were talking about Mark Randolph and it's like, Mark had this little impish grin. And when you, when you did something wrong, you got the same response as when you did something right. But it, you kind of came to the realization that huh. he almost liked it when, thing, when you screwed something up. Interesting. Because he was like, okay, what, what can we learn from this? Oh. And some of the biggest things that I can point back to that what we did, what I did on the email side, on the marketing side, on you know, impacting the, the length of subscriptions came because of something that I did, I screwed up. What's, like what's I, an example? I, put, I want to hear an example. 
uh, we were doing something on, I was trying to test a certain, what we were trying to do is we're trying to test what could, what could, what could I do in email marketing that could impact the length of the subscription, uh, uh, the average subscription. Okay. Cause if we could get just like another week out of, out of people on the user base, it was like, it was worth it. And so I, you know, I was doing some tests and one of the things that I accidentally learned was, uh, that, um, if people rated one movie, just one movie, they were going to stick with us longer. Interesting. So, so I just like, so I just reworked all my emails instead of emails saying, Oh, this is our new release and all this. The emails were designed to create that one, um, that one, um, that first review, uh, because I could tell, I could, I could send out emails to people that had never rated a movie because that was just the way that it was. The other thing was, um, if you had more than 10 movies in your queue, you're going to stick with us longer. Oh. Boom. So it was like, okay, but, but I found that was those predictive actually. It wasn't just descriptive, meaning if you could get someone to add, say 11 movies that increased their likelihood of staying. Wow. Yes, because, amazing. but the reason that we were able to, to do that is because the, 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 the stats guys there, the, the measurement guys were so good at what they were doing because they, they had that mindset, just like you're describing there. It's like, they were like, what can we do? Not just because it's fun to test. What can we do that can have an impact that we've already decided this impact is, mm, is positive, valuable, increase the, le- the length of, of subscription. Yeah. Uh, for example, same thing with like uh, when people um, left, how could we get them to come back? Mm. So we had a whole nother process. Yeah, I, I can. I can now, go but on why, so, but hang on, the, the one part of this I don't understand yet is the mistake part. You said that it only came from a mistake. I was, I was sending out an email I, and I, I can't tell you the exact answer here. Sure. I know what you're asking, but I, but I was, I was sending out an email to prove something else. Oh, And, and what we came back with was, well, we, we didn't learn squat about that. Because I had I had a, a premise of something and I forgot and I don't remember what it was. But what I do remember is what we learned because no, that didn't work. But the data we collected from the email showed us this, and that was the other thing. It was the um, the um, the level of curiosity from the very top. I mean, you know, mm. from Reed and from I mean, Neil could make things do wonders, and and Mark and everyone. It was just like it was, uh, you know. Um, it was always testing, but um, testing with a purpose. And even if when you made a mistake, no big deal. Yeah. I mean, that, there was no, I guess what I'm thinking here is that it was a lack of judgment. Yeah. It's like, no one came back to you and said, oh, God, we're going to have to fire you because you keep screwing up. Right. It's like, no, you keep screwing up. But we keep learning stuff. No, I love, I love that. If you made a mistake, you got the same look as if you did something right. That's beautiful. Yes. Yes. And then, but then, but then the follow-up. So what did we learn? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like you, you wanted to make more mistakes. No, you know, I, I will you, say, I mean, just for the sake of listeners, this bad ideas are incredibly valuable. One thing, and there's a bunch of ways to approach this one thing, Edward de Bono, but let's start it with the nerdy approach. And then we'll do the applied approach in a second. Edward de Bono, author of Six Thinking Hats and Lateral Thinking, amazing thinker in his own right, says, the value of an idea lies not in its own merits, but in what it does to one's thinking. Which is to say, you know, like, uh, you know, if I pick up, okay, I'm, I've got two things sitting on my desk, Clorox wipes and a hat. Okay. So, and if I combine them, wow, like a hat with like Clorox, you know, wipes. Okay. that's. Is, so then uh, one question is, is that a good idea? 
Well, if we define it in terms of its ability to sell commercially, probably not. But if I define it in terms of what does that make me think of? Instead of asking, what do I think of this idea? Ask, what does this idea make me think of? Whoa, what if there are wipes that I actually could, that were as easy to access as pulling them out of my hat, right? When I'm on the go or what it made me, what if there's a glove that you could just pull it off in like a, like a poop bag, you just dispose of it with the thing, right? I don't know. Point is, what do I think of this idea is often less important than what does this idea make me think of? Which is to say, bad ideas are in the eye of the beholder. A bad idea is only bad if I can't do anything with it. And almost always, that's on me as the recipient. The genius in the room, just like in an accounting meeting, the genius is the person who goes, um, the numbers in the fourth column don't add up. It's like, thank you, Larry. That's a very helpful contribution, right? Well, and seriously, we're glad for all the Larrys in the accounting meetings. But the helpful contribution in the brainstorming meeting is the person who can go, actually, hang on, before we dismiss that, you know what that made me think of? And then they drop this bomb and we're all like, how did they see possibility there, right? As much as we value the ability to spot an error in the critical meeting, we have to value the ability to see possibility in the, in the thing that seems absurd. You know, and like, uh, and now for the practical example, that's the kind of academic backing. What Johnny Ive said about working with Steve Jobs, you know, Sir Johnny Ive had lunch with Steve Jobs every day. And he said every day, this is one thing he shared at uh, Steve Jobs memorial service. Um, he said every day, Steve and I would have lunch and every day Steve would say, Hey, Johnny, want to hear a dopey idea? And he said, most of the time they were truly dopey. In fact, sometimes they were downright terrible, but every once in a while, they take the air out of the room and leave us breathless in wonder, right? As only Sir Johnny Ive can say, right? But the point is there's an orientation towards I'm willing to share bad ideas, bad ideas that see daylight have the potential to trigger something, trigger creativity in someone else. And it's worth the risk. And one of the big questions in an organization, and it gets back to, it sounds like how Mark dealt with mistakes at Netflix. What happens to the person with the bad idea? What happens to the person with the failed experiment? That is actually the defining moment for a leader. And for a lot of people, it's, it's, if it's, if it's, uh, the verdict is it's bad. The verdict is it's a mistake. Well, all right, that you've said a lot about your culture. But if the verdict is, well, what did we learn? What, what does that make us think of doing next? There's that sense of forward momentum. There, there is a culture that is, that nurtures the creative impulse. And it goes back to, we'll wind up here because I don't want to uh, make it late. Um, it goes back to my, my previous question of where do I get ideas? Mm. And you're just describing exactly where you get ideas. It's like their ideas are everywhere if you're looking for yes. them. And yes. you're not, you're not being judgmental about yourself or for others. Looking is actually, Tom, really important. I don't know if you're familiar with this. There's a, there's a, a, a kind of a test conducted by Carl Dunker called Dunker's Radiation Experiment. It's a very difficult insight problem. And what Dunker did was he would give it to people, something like 10% of the population could solve this problem from the outset. But then he would give them a couple of analogies that unbeknownst to them had bearing on the problem. And if you had the analogy, you were something like 30% likely to solve the problem. If you had the analogy and were told, see if there are any implications of this analogy on the problem that you'd be given, 
your likelihood of solving the problem jumped to like 80%, which is to say what? Solutions appear to the person who's looking for them. But if they're not looking, most times, most solutions go overlooked. And so it's really an orientation. I think someone's called it the art of noticing. And designers and innovators are people who have developed a keen eye for what most of us overlook. But noticing is something that anybody can cultivate. You can actually cultivate that behavioral attribute in your life. Right, that, that, that's, that's a super important point because it's like, yeah, you, you, that's something that you can cultivate. It's something that you can do. You can practice yourself. it, right? Yes. You can yes. totally practice it. Just like keeping a bug list. I mean, it's one of the most famous assignments at Stanford the last 60 years. Write down a list of things that bug you. You know, it's not like errors in lines of code. You know, it's long before computer programming entered common parlance. Bob McKim would tell students, keep a bug list. The stuff that annoys you is incredible fodder for innovation. And it takes, it's so, it takes so little effort just to write annoyances down. But if you cultivate that habit, it leads to incredible results. I mean, the, the, the biggest story that we always had, that I remember Reed Hastings at Netflix was telling me when we went to lunch. It's like, what, what, what he got, one of the reasons he got started is because he was really mad at Blockbuster for charging mm-hmm. him uh, a, 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 a late fee. Yeah. And, and it's just like, you know, it's like it, he was so annoyed that, you know, I mean, the story is, is what, it, what, what it goes on to, but even small little annoyances, it's like, that's, those are the problems to be solving. That's what, you know, Seinfeld says a lot of his comedy comes from his, what he calls his overly sensitive, his delicate sensibility. He said the challenge with with becoming wealthy is you tend to insulate yourself from all of life's annoyances, which dries the creative well. So he said, you know what the answer is? You got to have kids. <laughs> that, 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 that's the great leveler. That's right. There. That's right. Of, of anyone. Uh, hey, Jeremy, I really appreciate your time here. Uh, for, my pleasure for speaking because this this has been a really good conversation and. Where can people learn more about uh, IdeaFlow? Yeah, I would say, you know, I blog. I try to blog every day. Lately with the book, it's been more like every week, but at my website, jeremyutley.design. And uh, we've got a book website, ideaflow.design. If folks go there, they can download a free bonus chapter called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs, which describes seven of our favorite stories of the way those guys thought that led to breakthrough outcomes. It's eminently learnable skill, as learnable as noticing, right? Um, so yeah, ideaflow.design, jeremyutley.design. Uh, folks can find me on Twitter at Jeremy Utley, LinkedIn at Jeremy Utley. I'm definitely out there. And I love, I mean, I think similar, Tom, to you, how you and I met, I love meeting people online and, and sharing stories online. And I'm, I would be delighted to get to hear from, um, from folks who, are, uh, who got stimulated by our discussion. That'd be great. No, no, invite people from, from all over the world to... Uh to to uh, to make that connection please do. so again thanks again for for joining this is the gamers change lives podcast play games create jobs change lives thanks jeremy thank you you've just heard the gamers change lives podcast if you enjoyed this episode please take a moment and leave a review and if you haven't subscribed do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded and so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever you can also visit us at gamerschangelivespodcast.com play games create jobs change lives thanks for listening